Hi, and welcome to Come Read With Me, Rev Chris. Chris and David are currently off recording season three. Until then, check back here each week to hear one of Chris's sermons from the archive. Enjoy. I um, I heard uh, a crazy story. It's true. Uh, I believe it's true. Um, and it's, it's kind of under the title of the unluckiest, luckiest skydiver. Um, there was a lady in America. Her name is Joan Murray. And she was a solo uh, skydiver. She was on her 36th solo sky, skydive. She jumps out of a plane. And as usual, for about 45 seconds of free fall, she pulled her chute. But her chute didn't open. And she was trying to get it loose and it wouldn't come out. And then she was like, okay, reserve chute. So she pulls her reserve chute and her reserve chute opens but tangles. And suddenly she's plummeting in what's called like a death spiral where she's just spinning like this out of control. And everyone is watching and like, oh my goodness, what's happening? She's, she's not got the chute. She's gonna, she's gonna crash. She's gonna die. She plummets to the earth and she lands. Bang. And they rush over to the call ambulances. She breaks, she's broken like all the bones in her body. And when they get to her, they find she's still actually breathing. The ambulance crew bring her, put her in the ambulance, they rush her to hospital, and she's still breathing. And her heart is still going, and they couldn't believe it. She'd fallen basically out of a plane, landed on the ground, and she's still alive. So they, they start to work, they go to work on her, the doctors go to work on her, and as they strip her and try and prep her and IV and everything and get her heart going and moving, um, they realise she's like broken out into some kind of strange rash all over her body. She's got these like red um, bites or something all over her body, and, it's, and, um, and they didn't know what it was at first. But what turns out is that when she'd fallen out of the plane... She'd actually landed on a fire ant's nest. And as she hit the fire ant's nest, the fire ants thought they were under attack. And they all came pouring out of their fire ant home under the ground. And they just bit her all over her body. And this caused her an immune reaction, which sent adrenaline and respiratory all over her body. So the adrenaline kept her heart going and she was breathing. Her respiratory system was going over time. And actually, it is what saved her. Because this immune reaction kept her alive when actually her body just wanted to go. She was pumped full of adrenaline in this reaction. Kind of a crazy story. Classic Chris segue. Uh, In our stories today, it'll make sense. In our stories today, we have these wonderful, wonderful recordings. I really enjoy anything about Elijah always kind of makes me interested. He seems like this great prophet in the Old Testament. And Elijah is coming to the end of his time on earth, his end of his service. And he knows this. Um, He's been leading and speaking God's promises to the people of Israel for a long time now. And he's going off on this final journey to go to God. And he has with him his disciple Elisha. Elisha, there are many other prophets, but it seems like Elisha is quite a close disciple of Elijah. So Elijah says to Elisha, uh, if we can get the pronunciation. Elijah says to Elijah, I- I've got to go to Bethel. You wait here. It's a bit of a journey. You stay here. And Elijah's like, no way. I'm coming with you. Far be it from me to leave your side. I'm going to come with you. So Elisha and Elijah, they go um, and they walk to Bethel. And when they get there, Elijah is now like, I'm feeling called, um, moved to go to Jericho. You wait here. It's a bit of a journey. Just wait here. Don't worry. 
I'm going to go to Jericho. And then again, Elisha says, no, I'm going with you. I'm going to stay by your side. I'm not going to leave you. And so he's like, okay, come along. And they go to Jericho. And when they get to Jericho, lots of the prophets hear that Elijah is coming and they come out to meet him. And then they go from the Jordan area. They go on to, uh, from Jericho, they go to Jordan. So and now Elijah, Elijah is like, I'm going to go to Jordan now. So first Bethel, then Jericho, and now he's going to Jordan. And all the prophets and Elisha go with him this time. And then they get near Jordan, and he's like, look, wait here. And the prophets are like, okay, we'll wait here. But Elisha says, no, I'm coming with you. I'm not leaving your side. And he goes with him again, and he goes on a bit further. Now, to give you a distance of what's going on, it's about 12 miles from where they were to Bethel. It's about 12 miles from Bethel to Jericho. And then it's about 21 miles from Jericho to the Jordan. So about 45 miles all in a day, in the heat and the dustiness of that time. And at every point, Elijah has saying to Elisha, just wait, you don't need to come, just wait. And he's like, no, I'm coming with you. I'm staying with you. And then what do we see? We see Elisha ask this kind of bold, you know, give me a double portion. Kind of very un-English, isn't it? Give you a double portion of your gifting. And he gets this blessing that pours on him. Now compare and contrast this passage of this commitment between Elijah towards Elijah with this New Testament passage that we have. So in the New Testament, we have Jesus. He's going on. He wants to go to this village in Samaria. And the people in Samaria are like, no, we don't really want you. You're going on to Jerusalem. We don't want you. So they move on. They go around. And then we have these three stories of these people who come up to Jesus. And they're like, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. And the first man um, we hear is, uh, he says, I want to follow you. I'll go wherever you go. I will be with you. And Jesus turns to him and says, foxes have dens. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We don't know if the man stayed or turned around, but the impression is Jesus is saying to him, you're kind of seeking a comfortable ride here, but it's not comfortable to follow me. It's difficult to follow me. You don't perhaps understand what you're asking. And then we have the second story. Jesus says to a man, follow me. And the man says, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the, bear, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom. So what's going on here? Jesus isn't saying uh, a dead guy is going to get up and bury a dead guy. He's saying that this person is spiritually not there. Like, it's quite challenging. He's saying, let the dead bury the dead. Those who do not know, those who reject, those who turn away, those who have no opening towards me, they may be living, but they're dead. It's a challenge. It's difficult. You kind of feel like there's a frustration going on in Jesus at the moment. He just wants to go to Jerusalem through Samaria. And the Samaritans are like, no. And then these people come out and they're like, oh, I kind of want to follow you. And Jesus is like, look, are you really committed? Are you going to follow me? Let the dead bury the dead. And by the way, this person's father isn't probably dead. It might seem harsh. Is he dead? Of course he should go back and have the funeral. This was a turn of phrase used in the time of Israel. Where, where people would say, oh, let me first bury my father, meaning let me continue my life and when my parents re, uh, reach the age where they die and I inherit from them, then I will be able to do X, Y, and Z. It was a common turn of phrase. So he's not saying, 
my dad's dead, can I go to his funeral? He's saying, when the time comes and he dies and I inherit the farm or I inherit the thing and I'm now in a place, I'm ready, I'm maybe financially stable, my life is in order, when that time has come, then I'll commit and I'll follow you. And Jesus is challenging that idea. He's like, no, unless you are ready now, giving me everything now, it doesn't matter what's going on with everything else. You follow me. And then we have this other, the final recording is when Jesus is speaking with another guy and he comes forward and he said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. It's kind of a simple request. Let me first go back and say goodbye. And you can feel the exasperation. Jesus is like, oh, come on. Like, what are you not understanding? And he says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And in, in, when you are plowing your field, uh, you needed to get as much as you could from your harvest. You needed to get the lines straight. You needed to get them close together. And you wanted to get a good harvest. And if you didn't keep your eyes forward with your ox, but if you turn, then the ox would sometimes weigh off to the side and move and your lines would be all mucked up. And if you actually try to look back to see if your line is straight, it would be problematic. The best way to keep your line straight and to get the most from your harvest is just to be focused on what is in front of you. And Jesus is kind of challenging this idea about looking constantly back looking back at your past, looking back at maybe things that have gone wrong or right, whatever, who, who cares? Jesus is like, focus on what's in front of you. Focus on me. This is how we prepare the way. Let's keep going forward. In the first story, we see a disciple who is committed to his master. And his master is constantly saying, rest, stay, don't worry about it. And his disciple is constantly saying, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. 45 miles in the baking heat in Palestine area, it's hot. I'm with you. You could say that the disciple understands that if he stays close to his master, to Elijah, he will get a great blessing. He is committed to him as a person and he's also has the faith in this person, his master, to say, if I stay with you, there will be, I will reap rewards because my life, if it's connected with you, will see great stuff happen. And in the second, we see these people who verbally say, I want to follow you. I want to be with you. I want to give my life to you. But when Jesus challenges them, When he points out and it's not easy, he kind of takes apart their argument a little bit. They drift off. And it's a challenge to us today. It's a challenge to us. The cost of discipleship, have we weighed it up? Do we perceive Christ as the one to walk with forever, no matter the cost? Do we prioritize our walk with Jesus, our discipleship, over other things? Following Jesus is not always easy. It is a daily grind sometimes, submitting, sacrificing, serving, getting it wrong, repenting, reflecting. 
It is also wonderful. I don't want to just be like, burden. Oh, the guilt. It's not about that. But it is about a realistic wake-up call. Like, it isn't easy. You know, and an attitude of sometimes, you know, giving or serving, being like, oh, shall I bother? Or giving into the, into, uh, financially to the church, a great part of worship. It's not like tipping at the end of a restaurant. You're not tipping God. You're saying, I'm giving you the first fruits of what I have. We have just entered ordinary time. If you've noticed, there's green here. And there's green on the altar. Ordinary time is this wonderful season in the church, which is what its name means. It's ordinary. It's the everyday. We don't have Easter. We don't have Christmas. We're just in this long period of ordinary time. It's like 20-something weeks. And it stops in November when we hit Advent. And I love ordinary season. Because it's the, it's the, it's no highs and lows, there's no preparation. You know, I love Christmas and Easter, but um, I mean, they can be a bit of a stress, but I enjoy it. But I like the ordinary season because it's like, I don't know, there's something about it as like, come on then, it's just me and Jesus. You know, we're just trotting along, average Sundays, preaching, leading our lives, normality. And there's something about that season which I find really refreshing. At Christmas and Easter, we get people who come out who don't usually go to church, who might come here, and I love them and bless them, and I'm not in this pulpit, pulpit, whatever you want to call this, I'm not in this place to, to bash people at all, and I, and I hope that we can be a church that welcomes the newcomer and the, maybe the person who's, who's, who's interested maybe, and they come at Easter to see, bless them, bring them, may God speak to them. But it is in the ordinary every day that I think Jesus is talking about here. His challenge isn't, oh, come and, come and get me when you want. Come and get me when you need me. He's like, walk with me. Prioritize me. Put me front and center in your life. And as you do that, you will see the fruit. You will see the reward. You will have peace amidst chaos. You develop your prayer life in the seasons of normality for when the storms come, you are prepared and you are covered in prayer life and you realize that your anchor is deep in Christ and you are unshakable in that time. The ordinary daily life is the season to be doing that. And Jesus' challenge to us is don't just wait till you fall out of a plane because you might not have the fire ants to bite and such a random thing, right? We, I'm talking about it because it never happens. But our daily walk is sometimes mundane. The alarm clock goes off on a Sunday morning. Ugh. The baby wakes you up. It's raining cold. Shall I bother? I'm on service team today, but maybe someone else can cover. That stuff actually does matter. What we do does matter. Maybe this is a bit American, right? Look at the person next to you and say, what you do matters. Challenge, go. What you do matters, okay? Forgive me for that. There's a line in the sand. Uh, anyway, but 
It matters. You come, you commit. You're like, no, church, home group, evening on a Tuesday, whatever it is, morning devotional time. Line it up, get it in place. Because sometimes we will have those terrible times, difficult times. And we need this in this time now is when we cultivate. And I don't say this to shame or give you guilt. I say this because our walk with Christ should be a joy. I love this church. I love coming on a Sunday. I'm like, yes, worship, scripture. I get to preach. It's what I feel called to do. I want to encourage God's people. I love Jesus. I mean, I do. I walk, hallelujah, I walk with him. I love speaking about him. I have meetings through the week where people are like, they're struggling with their faith. And I'm like, keep going. It's great. It is good. He is real. This world is passing away. Stop and think about that for a moment. It is passing away. The wind goes over it. Your place will know you no more. But the goodness of the Lord endures forever. You will never regret spending time thinking and worshipping and serving God. Everything else falls away. I believe that this is a great church and God is doing stuff in us and we, are, we have a wonderful future ahead of us. And coming here and serving here and commit, being committed here will cost you at times But if it doesn't, what is this place? It is a social club where friends come and hang out and we do occasional stuff together. And that is not church. This is a place where we find out what it means to follow Christ, where we hear his word, where we worship him, where we commit, where we seek to serve. And it's a privilege to be part of building the kingdom of heaven in the time given to us in our lifetime. Jesus says, pick up your cross. Come follow me. When I, uh, when I went to uh, Tanzania, my brother, my twin brother, went into Sandhurst. And it's the army officer training uh, place in England. And it's a really difficult place. Um, their motto, I think, is serve to lead. And in... Um, in Sandhurst, they, they, you know, it's really brutal. It's running, it's getting up, it's serving, it's going on big missions, it's tiring, you get shouted out a lot. And they, they, like I said, they break you down in order to build you up, to send you on to war. And I said to him as he was going, and I was going to Tanzania, it was kind of this fork in the road for us both. He went into the army and I went into the church. But I said, Charles, your greatest struggle will probably be week three or four. Um, because the rush and adrenaline of joining Sandhurst and being chosen to be an officer will sustain you for at least two weeks, where you'll be like, yeah, come on, I'm an officer, I'm training. Wow, this is brutal, but it's okay. I'm going, going. It's week three and four where that dies down, and you're left with, this is really tough. This is going to be my life for the next nine months oh my gosh, do I really want this? And I said, keep going in that period of time. And he did, and he came through it, and he's a British Army officer. He served our country now in two wars. 
He's currently working on some pretty cool top secret stuff with Ukraine crisis. He's been in the army between 15 and 20 years now. That's what he's doing because he went through this season at the very beginning. How is your faith in the ordinary? How is your faith in the everyday? In the school run, in the workplace? How is your faith? Is it lit? Is it unreliant of circumstance around you? Do you see it more like a, a spring within you? Or is it a well and it's like dragging up water? It can be that. There are times of springs and there's times of wells, but we still seek the water. Keep going, keep walking with Christ because it is eternal what we sow in this life. And you will be blessed. And as you come, you will build up this church. You will build up God's people. You will build up each other. And we will build the kingdom of heaven together. And the kingdom of heaven will advance. And God will be glorified. Amen.